Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be bringing you the conclusion of the case of Briasia Terrell in Davenport, Iowa. Let's get right to it. Let's pick up right where we left off. After nine months of searching, on March 22, 2021, a group of three fishermen had stumbled upon the body of 10-year-old Briasia Terrell near the Kunau Implement in Clinton County. The medical examiner and forensic anthropologist determined that the little girl had been shot three times with a 38 caliber revolver, the gun recovered from the pond on the property. The Davenport Police, in conjunction with the other agencies who assisted in the investigation, held a joint press conference, confirming that the body found near the Kunal implement was that of Briasia Terrell. Davenport Police Chief Paul Sikorsky broke down as he spoke. He revealed that for nine months, his investigators had worked nonstop on Briasia's case. This wasn't the way they wanted to bring her home. His sentiments were echoed throughout the community. The loss of Briasia Terrell devastated her family first and foremost. But it went beyond that, shattering the hearts of the community and the officers who had poured their hearts and souls into finding her. As the community held vigils and grieved the loss with Briasia's family, the local media televised the press conferences and reported heavily on the discovery of the remains and the fact that police were still looking for any and all information about Henry Dinkins and his maroon Chevy Impala. All that media attention led to another major break in the case. According to court testimony, days after the remains had been found, two friends, Joseph and Jared, were at Joseph's house just outside of DeWitt, Iowa. The pair were talking when the conversation turned to the body that had been found. That's when Jared told his friend Joseph that he had pulled a guy out that was stuck near the Kunal implement, possibly around the time Briasia vanished. Jared didn't know much about the man, just that he was a black male and that the car was maroon. Hearing all this, Joseph's wife, of course, immediately pulled up a photo of Dinkin's maroon Chevy Impala and Jared said that he thought that was the vehicle he had pulled out that night. The husband and wife told Jared he needed to get into contact with law enforcement, and Jared did. On March 24, 2021, Jared Brink sat down with investigators and told them the whole story. He couldn't remember the exact date or time of year, but it was early in the morning, about 4.30 when he was driving down Highway 61 headed to his job at Linwood Mining. He was near the canal implement when a black male jumped out in front of his truck and flagged him down. He stopped and the man walked over to the driver's side window and told him his car was stuck. The man continued on explaining that he had made a wrong turn from Clinton to Davenport 
and got stuck when he tried to turn around. Jared noticed that the man had a mole on the right side of his nose. Any guesses on who else also has a mole on the right side of their nose? Yep, Henry Dinkins. Anyhow, Jared was the perfect person to flag down. He just so happened to have a chain in the back of his truck. So he drove the man from Highway 61 to the area of 270th Street to the maroon car which was stuck toward the south end of the pond with the rear tires off the gravel road. Jared hooked the car to his truck and was able to snatch it out quickly. The man seemed normal, extremely grateful even, and repeatedly offered to give him $100 cash for getting the car out. Jared didn't take him up on his offer and told him instead that he should help someone else out when he got the chance. The two parted ways and it wasn't until that conversation with his friend that Jared realized that it was very possible that the man he had pulled out and helped was the man police suspected had murdered a 10-year-old child. Jared was able to recall that the interior of the vehicle was light tan and that the car was clean, but he distinctly remembered a white ox cord on the center console. Lo and behold, investigators had also made note of a white ox cord on the center console when they had seized Dinkins' vehicle. So, after his interview, police took him to the garage, where Henry Dinkins' maroon Chevy Impala was being stored, and Jared identified the car as the same car he had pulled out that night. And when shown still photos taken from the video surveillance of Dinkins from the quick shop the night Briasia vanished, he said that the shorts Dinkins was wearing appeared to be the same ones the man had on that night, though he wasn't certain he could pick Dinkins out of a lineup because it was dark. But he definitely remembered the car, the cord, the mole, and the shorts. Jared also led investigators to the exact spot he had pulled the car from. With this new information, the FBI took soil samples from where Jared had pulled the car out, as well as the area 100 yards from where Briage's body had been found. I mean, it was all right there within feet of each other. Ten samples were taken to be compared to samples taken from Dingen's Impala, and three of the ten matched. There was now witness testimony and physical evidence linking Dinkins directly to the scene where Briasia's body had been recovered. On May 5, 2021, another press conference was held to announce that Henry Dinkins who, remember, was already in custody for violating his sex offender conditions, was officially charged with first-degree murder and the kidnapping of Briasia Terrell. With Dinkins finally charged, news broke that he had been on parole for four months at the time Briasia was murdered. If you remember, he was paroled early from a five-year prison sentence stemming from charges in March of 2019 when he crashed his car in a yard running from police while he was high on crack. And then while on bail for that charge was arrested again in possession of more than 900 grams of meth and 200 grams of amphetamine in nearby Bureau County, Illinois. He was able to post bond in that case as well. In fact, according to court records obtained by the Associated Press, 
Dinkins had pled guilty to the 900 grams of meth and 200 grams of amphetamine charge two days before Briasia Terrell was murdered, so July 7th of 2020. Dinkins agreed in a courtroom to plead guilty to possession with intent to deliver methamphetamine in Bureau County and was sentenced to eight years. However, Dinkins claimed that he needed more time to get his affairs in order before going back to prison, and a hearing was scheduled for July 22nd for him to enter his plea. And this was allowed. Somebody make it make sense, because it just doesn't. This monster should have and could have been behind bars on July 10, 2020. But no, he was granted time to get his affairs in order. And he took that time to senselessly murder an innocent 10-year-old girl. Did Briasia Terrell have time to get her affairs in order before her life was ripped away from her? The answer to that question is no. No, she didn't. But this bucket of scum, what? Paroled early, released on bail after being arrested for another major crime, failed to comply with his sex offender requirements, and then was given a sabbatical before he had to check into prison. Come on, man. Anyone with two eyes could see that Henry Dinkins was a high-risk offender, a flight risk, and a danger to the public at large. But nevertheless, he was released. On June 16, 2021, Dinkins officially entered a plea of not guilty to the kidnapping and murder of Briasia Terrell. The case was headed for trial, but as is common, there were multiple delays. In February of 2022, Dinkins wrote a letter to District Court Judge Henry Latham, requesting a new lawyer, taking a line straight from Cool Hand Luke, writing in part, Quote, me and Mr. Puentes have a failure to communicate. If you know, you know, and if not, I'm sorry. Dinkins went on to say, I have not seen him but one time for five to eight minutes tops. He also claimed attorney Miguel Puentes gave him two non-existent phone numbers and that at this point he'd rather represent himself. In closing, Henry Dinkins wrote, I'm asking the courts to give me someone that is willing to help me fight this case. The judge initially denied the motion and directed the attorney to provide Dinkins with a good number and to speak with him at least once a week about the case. Dinkins' defense team requested to move the trial out of Scott County due to pretrial publicity and in March of 2022, District Court Judge Henry Latham granted that request. The trial was to be held in the Cedar Rapids courtroom in Lynn County. But there was another delay, because apparently there were still issues with Dinkins and his defense team. Dinkins filed two more motions for a new attorney, and the third one was granted. Miguel Puentes was out, and Chad Fries and Joel Waters were appointed as Dinkins' new defense team. Chad and his wife had made headlines at the time as a team representing the man who murdered Molly Tibbetts, the University of Iowa student who was abducted and murdered while out on a jog near her home in Brooklyn, Iowa. The defense attorneys, especially Chad, are known for being outspoken and maybe even at times antagonistic, both in and out of the courtroom. But it seemed Henry Dinkins welcomed the new team. The defense immediately filed motions to have evidence thrown out to include Dinkins' statements in the interrogation room, 
they claim Dinkins hadn't been properly Mirandized. And the Scott County attorney, Kelly Cunningham, filed a request of her own to introduce new evidence. The evidence? In court records obtained by WHBF, prosecutors alleged that Dinkins searched for violent child porn in the days before he murdered Briasia Terrell. The records state, quote, In checking his search history through the internet, in the 10 days preceding Briasia Terrell being abducted, it was determined that Dinkins had been searching pornographic sites, the titles of which involved the sexual abuse of young black female children. Neither the prosecution nor the defense were granted their motions. Henry Dinkins' statements and evidence collected due to those statements would not be suppressed. However, the evidence of Dinkins' prior criminal record, including his conviction of third-degree sexual abuse of a five-year-old child and his searches for graphic and violent child pornography, wouldn't be heard in the courtroom. And with that, jury selection was to begin in Lynn County on August 8, 2023. But instead of selecting a jury, Dinkins changed his mind and opted for a bench trial. A bench trial simply means that a defendant waives their constitutional right to a trial by jury and instead opts for their case to be decided by a single judge. Since Dinkins decided on a bench trial, the case was moved back to Scott County and back in the courtroom of District Court Judge Henry Latham. The trial of Henry Dinkins was going to be one for the books. WQAD reported that around 90 witnesses and 140 exhibits were expected in a trial that was projected to last around five weeks. On August 10, 2023, the trial finally got underway. Scott County Attorney Kelly Cunningham expertly laid out every aspect of the case. She walked the judge through the events leading up to Briage's disappearance, the murder of the 10-year-old little girl, the nine-month-long search and investigation, and every movement down to the minute Henry Dinkins made during that time. She presented the state's theory that Dinkins had sexually assaulted Briasia Terrell and that when he realized that she would likely tell someone, he murdered her to cover it all up. Kelly Cunningham wove the story together through witness testimony, like that of Aisha Langford, who testified that Briasia was a rule follower. She definitely would have told someone if she had been assaulted. The testimony of Andrea Culberson, who stated on the stand that the last time she had seen Briasia Terrell, she was standing next to Dinkins' maroon Chevy Impala. Dinkins left the Jersey Meadow Apartments with Briasia and returned without her. Andrea testified all about how Dinkins had left his phone that night and refused to answer questions about what was going on, and how when he had returned to the house that night, around 3.30 a.m., he was wearing different clothes. To be specific, a white wife beater, blue shorts, and gold sneakers. The same outfit Jared Brink described in the same outfit Dinkins was captured wearing in that surveillance video from the Quick Stop. An outfit that, according to later court testimony, had never been found despite multiple search warrants. 
Countless detectives and expert witnesses were called to the stand and they testified to the soil sample matches, Dinkins' movements, the surveillance videos, the bleach found at the scene, the machete at the RV, which was found to have white fibers from a washcloth stuck to the blade, further corroborating Dee's account of watching Dinkins wipe down a large knife. And then there was a man who had snatched Dinkins' car out, feet away from where Briasia's remains had been found. Unfortunately, Jared Brink couldn't be called to the stand because he had died of natural causes just months prior to the trial. But his friend Joseph and his police interview, where he identified the Impala and described a man who definitely fit Dinkins' description, was presented to the judge. Though he wasn't there to give his testimony, Jared Brink's story was crucial to the prosecution's case. And then there were the two former inmates, two inmates who had been behind bars with Dinkins after Briasia vanished. Both of them testified that sometime in October of 2020, Dinkins and a group of prisoners were watching the news when a story about the search for Briasia aired. David Baker recalled that Dinkins said to him, quote, They will never find her. Baker stated that Dinkins said it in such a way that it gave him the impression that he knew where she was. Baker's at-the-time cellmate, Matt Dean, also testified, recalling that Dinkins had told him that he wasn't involved in Briasia's disappearance, but that he knew who was. According to Dean, Dinkins told him that a female, which he couldn't remember the name of, was involved in sex trafficking and that she was involved in Briasia's disappearance. Dean also recalled that Dinkins had said on at least one occasion, they are never going to find her. It's important to note that neither former inmate was given anything in exchange for their testimony, and they both willingly came forward with their statements to police. And further, at the time of his testimony, Matt Dean was no longer being held behind bars and facing no legal action. But perhaps the most powerful testimony of all was that of Briasia's at-the-time eight-year-old brother, D, who was now 11. The boy testified about just how close he had been to his big sister and how she was like a second mom to him. He recalled meeting Andrea Culberson and seeing Henry Dinkins at that cookout at the river a month prior to Briasia's disappearance, and that a month later, arrangements had been made for him to visit Dinkins. He testified that on that July 9th day, when Dinkins came to pick him up from his grandmother's house, he was excited and that he really wanted Briasia to come along because he felt comfortable with her there. He also wanted his older brother C to go, but Dinkins said no to that and, as we know, only took D and Briasia. D recalled going to Andrea Culberson's apartment, playing video games, and his mom dropping off clothes. He testified to the long white t-shirts, and the fact that he was upset that Dinkins seemed to be paying more attention to Briasia than him. The boy remembered that Briasia had fallen asleep in the bed and that Andrea was laying down on the air mattress, and when he fell asleep, his father was still awake in the living room. At some point during the night, he felt Briasia kick him hard in the leg. It woke him up for a moment, and then he fell back asleep. The next time he woke up, Briasia was gone. Andrea Culberson was looking across the bed out the window, and Briasia and Dinkins were gone. He asked Andrea where his sister was, and she said she didn't know. He then laid down on the couch. 
He recalled Henry Dinkins coming back, grabbing something out of the closet, and leaving again. At that point, Dee cried and began to worry about his sister. The 11-year-old recounted that Henry came back a second time and left again. When he returned the third time, he took Dee with him. It was early in the morning of July 10th. On the stand, Dee struggled to keep the events in order. But he recalled the trip to Walmart in Clinton County when Dinkins bought bleach and he played a game in the car. A long drive in a dirt road and his father pouring bleach by some bushes before placing the bleach bottles back in the trunk of the Impala. When the boy asked where they were, Dinkins replied, we're riding. Dinkins then proceeded to his RV, opened the trunk of the Impala and grabbed a machete, which he wiped off with bleach and left at the RV. At some point, he recalled that they were near some water and his father told him that he was going fishing with six people. Six people that Dee never saw. Dee remembered Dinkins calling Aisha and then his mom meeting them at McDonald's. Dee's recollection of events matched pretty damn perfectly to Andrea Culberson's. Not to mention the fact that physical evidence corroborated many of the details. The cadaver dogs hitting everywhere Dee said he had gone with his father. The footprints at Credit Island. The fact that Briasia wasn't found wearing her own clothes, but a nondescript 4XL white t-shirt that Dinkins had given her. The machete at the RV and being near a pond. When you added it all up, though much of it was circumstantial, it was damning. The defense couldn't allow that to stand, so as they had done throughout much of the other testimony, they attempted to poke holes in the now 11-year-old boy's story. And as they had with other witnesses, they threw everything they could at him in an attempt to get him to impeach himself. Mr. Freeze. Is it okay if I call you D2? Yes. Okay, D. You doing okay? Yep. Tell the court, just for the record, who Henry Dinkins is to you. My father. Okay. You're angry at your father, right? Yes. And you're angry at your father because you think he hurt your sister, right? Yes. And you're convinced of that, right? Yes. And you're here today to offer testimony to make sure that he's held accountable for doing that, right? Yes. And you're going to say whatever you need to say to make sure that happens, aren't you? Yes. Okay. And the reason I ask you that is you're telling us some stuff today, and you'll agree with me on this. Tell me if I'm wrong. That we're hearing for the first time today, right? Yes. After getting Dee to admit that he was angry with his father, which of course he was, defense attorney Chad Freeze picked apart Dee's testimony piece by piece, and at times, Dee became confused by the timeline. Despite the fact that Dee was an eight-year-old child at the time of his sister's murder, or that now sitting there on the stand, he was only 11, Chad Freeze pressed hard and fired off a line of questioning. Dee was confused and angry and rightly so. Testifying in a murder trial is intimidating for a full-grown-ass adult. Now imagine a boy trying to recall facts from when he was eight and the murder trial of his sister with a defense attorney rapid-firing questions and all but accusing him of lying. Sparks flew. Some court watchers believed that the defense attorney crossed a line while others felt he was just doing his job. 
What happened next left Jaws on the floor. The exchange between Chad Freeze and Dee heated up, and Dee testified to something during cross-examination that had not been disclosed during direct. Do you recall after Briasia was found that an officer came to your house and shared the news? Yes. You then also told police a different story, didn't you? I didn't tell no cops no different story. You didn't tell the police that you were present when Briasia was shot? I don't know. You don't know? No, you're making me mad and upset. I understand that. You don't remember you don't know or you don't recall? I don't recall. You don't recall telling the police that you and Briasia and Henry and Andrea Culberson were all out at the location where she was found and Henry shot her? I didn't say Andrea was with us. Well who'd you say was who'd you say was with you? Him, me and my sister. Oh, so now you recall. Right? No, 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 I don't. <laughs> you, I don't know you, anything. You just don't want to answer, do you? I do, but you're... What do you recall? What do I recall? You obviously recall that Andrea wasn't there, so you recall facts. What do you recall? Us three there. At the location where Briasia was killed? Yes. Okay. You didn't testify to that today. Right? Yes. Because that's not true, right? If you say it's not true. I'm asking you. Um, I guess. I guess, or either it is or it isn't. Either you were there when she was killed or you weren't. I said, I guess. I don't accept that answer, sir. Either you were there when she was shot or you weren't. I was there. Damn. So you were there? Yes. You saw your dad shoot Briasia Terrell? Yes. Okay. And how come you didn't say that when the prosecutor asked you? Because it's not the truth, right? Everything I say is true. Okay, so the whole story about with the bloody knife and going to Walmart, you just conveniently left out the fact that you saw your sister get shot when the prosecutor was asking you? I didn't leave it out. I didn't speak about it. I hate speaking about it. Did you and the prosecutor talk about this ahead of time? In private, yeah. And you just told her not to ask you about it because you don't like to speak about it? I didn't tell her not to. Okay. Well, your testimony today is you saw Henry Dinkins shoot your sister. Yes. What kind of gun did he use? I don't know. How close were you to the incident? A couple of feet. Okay. Was it a pistol or a long gun? How am I supposed to know what it is? You were a couple feet away. 
That's I how you supposed to it, but I don't know what it is. Okay, what color was the gun? Silver. Okay. Was it a, uh, a gun that you hold up to your arm like this, or was it one you just hold in your hand? I don't know. Isn't it true that you only come up with this story after you heard someone else talk about it? No. Okay. You didn't overhear police or your mom talking about how Briasia was killed and come up with this story? I talk about what I saw, not what they talking about, what I saw. Okay. Not them. Okay. You didn't make this report about what you saw until after Briasia was found, right? I knew the whole story. And you didn't tell the whole story uh, when Briasia disappeared, did you? I said I barely talk about it. I said that first before I got up here. Okay, so it's your testimony that your mom and your family and everybody else is out searching for your sister. Okay. You know what happened, but you don't tell anybody, right? No. Okay, so your mom's out there literally scavenging every possible place to find the daughter that she loves and you know that she's been shot and you know where she is and you let your mom go out and search that way I told her where she was you told your mom where she was yes right away not right away but someday after that so you tell me now that you told your mom you, you knew where she was and where to find her and your mom did not go look for her She did go look for her. And didn't find her? At that same place, she did. Oh. Well, we'll ask her. The courtroom was stunned. After cross-examination on redirect, the prosecution clarified the timeline. And Dee testified that he, in fact, had seen his sister get shot. But he was too afraid to tell anyone. Had Dee actually witnessed the murder of his 10-year-old sister? It's hard to tell, but I can't stress enough that D was eight at the time this occurred. He was either a second or third grader. I don't know about you, but I happen to have an eight-year-old. He struggles to remember what he ate for lunch, and sometimes his stories are a little hard to follow. They're either lacking very important details or have random, possibly plausible, or completely fabricated ones thrown in. According to the CDC, huge milestones for this age group include tying their own shoes, reading simple sentences, adding single-digit addition, and dressing themselves. At eight, a child is just learning how to tie their shoes. Now add on the trauma of a sibling vanishing and ultimately being murdered, your father being responsible, and your testimony being crucial to the case. Testifying at the age of 11, years after the events occurred, trying to recall the details in a courtroom with, in my humble opinion, an ass of an attorney, twisting your words. The fact that Dee was even able to answer questions at that point shows a tremendous amount of courage. And once again, many of the things he testified to were backed up by Andrea Culberson and the physical evidence. Is it possible that Dee's memory of the events had faded? and his mind had filled in the blanks with the details he had learned after the fact, as the mind will often do, that D had a false memory of the shooting of his sister. Yes, according to the National Institute of Health, altered memories or memory aberrations are notable characteristics of PTSD, trauma, and depression. 
Is it possible that this child did in fact witness the murder of his sister and was too traumatized and afraid to even speak about it? Also, yes. Or is it possible that Dee just got frustrated with the process and the badgering of the defense attorney, so he said it thinking that it would help get justice for his sister? That's entirely possible, too. I don't have the answer, but there is no doubt that this little boy endured horrific trauma, and it is possible I would even go out on a limb and say probable that his memory and developing brain were affected. Regardless, calling Dee's testimony and credibility into question was one of the defense strategies. There was that and the lack of DNA evidence. Lack of DNA on Briasia's body, lack of DNA on the machete, the gun, the clothing, and the list went on. The defense contended that this proved that Dinkins wasn't responsible. And the prosecution agreed, at least with the lack of DNA. In fact, Dinkins' DNA wasn't found in his own Impala and neither was Briasia's. But that wasn't because he was innocent. That was because Henry Dinkins had used bleach to destroy key evidence. There was a bleach bottle found at the scene where Briasia's body had been found, a spray bottle of bleach near the bed in the RV. Investigators smelled bleach when they opened the trunk of the Impala. Walmart security captured Dinkins buying bleach. Dee recalled his father pouring bleach and there was bleach in the kitchen of Andrea's apartment. It was no surprise that DNA and blood evidence wasn't found because every direction you turned, there was a bottle of Clorox and that fiber from the washcloth found on the machete. While there might not have been DNA evidence, there was clearly evidence of a cleanup. The trial lasted 14 days. On August 29, 2023, both sides presented their closing arguments. The prosecution once again walked through the case from beginning to end, contending that Henry Dinkins sexually assaulted Briasia Terrell and murdered her to cover it up. The defense argued that there was no evidence Briasia had been sexually assaulted, and there sure as hell wasn't enough evidence to prove that Dinkins had murdered anyone. He just wasn't that guy. They relied heavily on the lack of DNA evidence, of course, and Dinkins never took the stand in his own defense. Court was adjourned and District Court Judge Henry Latham took his time before rendering his verdict. And before he did, Henry Dinkins penned another letter to the judge. I'm not going to waste your time by reading the whole thing, but Dinkins wrote in part. The state has used deception and sabotaged this whole case to fit their opinion of a theory which I have proof if given the opportunity to show you their lack of honesty to the courts and the public. He went on to claim that the state had withheld evidence all the way up until the day his trial began. This had not been brought up by Dinkins' defense counsel and this was the first time the prosecution had been accused of misconduct. I know I said the defense attorney Chad Freeze was kind of an ass, but what he wasn't was ineffective. If Dinkins' claims were true, I have no doubt that his legal team would have been all over it. Despite mountains of evidence, defense counsel went hard for their client, as they should. There was no way they would have missed actual prosecutorial misconduct. And Judge Latham concurred. Court TV reported that Judge Latham responded to the letter in a filing, 
stating since Dinkins had a public defender, he shouldn't, quote, file any pro se document except for a motion seeking disqualification of appointed counsel. The judge went on to say that Dinkins' attorney should confer with him to determine whether any motion should be filed and set for hearing. It wasn't, and on September 15, 2023, everyone was back in the courtroom anxiously awaiting the verdict. Before announcing the verdict, Judge Latham explained why he had taken so long to render one. He explained that during a bench trial in the state of Iowa, the court is required to write a written ruling. He went on to say that he could simply read the verdict and file his written decision, but due to the crime involved, he felt it necessary to read the entire decision. And he did just that. First, reading off Dinkins' charges, murder in the first degree, and first degree kidnapping. The judge then defined both charges and outlined the different types of evidence and the weight the court is given to analyze each piece. He went on to say that the state had the burden of proof and Dinkins was presumed innocent until proven guilty. He dotted every I and crossed every T before he dove straight into the facts of the case, listing every single detail from the time Henry Dinkins picked up the children from their grandmothers to when he believed the state proved Henry Dinkins had murdered Briasia Terrell. The judge added the court's findings in as he read through the facts, highlighting the evidence that he found most credible and compelling. When it came to the physical evidence, it was the surveillance footage of Dinkins and the quick stop. The judge believed Dinkins' actions in the video were an indication that Briasia was in the car. Also, the purchase of bleach and the soil samples taken from Dinkins and Paula, and the fact that the clothing Dinkins was seen wearing on surveillance and the clothing which had been described by several witnesses, the white wife beater, pink and blue shorts, and gold shoes, had never to this date been recovered. The machete found in the RV with the fibers from the washcloth, coupled with these testimony that he witnessed Dinkins wiping down a knife proved compelling enough to convince Judge Latham that Dinkins had in fact used that machete during the commission of his crime. While he never stated for what, the state's theory was that it was used to chop down branches, branches that were found on or near Briasia's remains. As the judge read through his findings, it became clear that this case came down to witness testimony. And Judge Latham found the testimony of Aisha Langford, Andrea Culberson, the numerous detectives, experts, and the inmates who testified as to the statements Dinkins made from behind bars credible. And beyond that, he was convinced Dinkins was lying and that the only truth he told when he was interviewed by police was that he had stopped by the quick shop. He also pointed out that Dinkins had taken measures to hide his movements that night, first leaving his cell phone at home and then removing the battery when he did take it. But the most compelling testimony by far came from Briasia's little brother D and Jared Brink. Judge Latham stated that the evidence provided by D and Brink undermined everything the defendant attempted to do to cover up his crime. He broke down as he said, these findings by the court are overwhelmingly supported by all the evidence provided by the state's witnesses, particularly the brave testimony provided by D and his statements to law enforcement. 
Judge Latham continued on, stating, This court finds it remarkable that an eight-year-old child is able to communicate with the police with such specificity to allow the Davenport Police Department to begin their investigation. And he remarked that Dee was instrumental in solving the murder and kidnapping of his sister, Briasia. The judge explained that he found Dee's testimony credible, minus the fact that he had witnessed his sister being shot. And when it came to the testimony of Jared Brink, the judge stated he had no doubt Jared had identified Henry Dinkins and the Chevy Impala as the vehicle he pulled out that night. The judge was convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Dinkins had Briasia in his control, was present at the site of where her remains were later found, and he was the person who had shot and murdered Briasia Terrell. Henry Dinkins was found guilty of first-degree kidnapping and guilty of first-degree murder. As the judge read the verdict, Henry Dinkins silently shook his head. After the verdict, the judge announced that sentencing was scheduled for October 11, 2023. Dinkins faces a mandatory life sentence without the chance at parole. In other words, if all goes according to plan, Henry Dinkins will die in prison, as he should. With the bang of the gavel, the courtroom erupted with cheers, followed by a whole lot of hugs and tears. Justice had finally been served for 10-year-old Briasia Terrell. After the verdict, Briasia's family met at the memorial near the Pond in DeWitt where her body had been found. They were dressed in purple, Briasia's favorite color, as they chanted, Justice for Briasia. Her mom, Aisha Langford, spoke to WQAD News at the gathering, stating, there is no amount of justice that can compare to what he took from me. He took everything from me. He broke me down and he took a lot. She continued, Today makes 1,163 days that we've been waiting for something. I feel like I won those lucky lottery numbers because, oh my God, I feel so good. I feel so relieved. I can breathe again because he took that away from me to be able to comfortably move around and to be able to breathe. And now I can breathe again. In the wake of the verdict, the community of Davenport, Iowa, rallied once again behind Briasia's family. Though short, Briasia's life forever impacted the Quad Cities. Her memory is kept alive through her family and the multiple memorial sites where members of the community gather to remember the bubbly little girl who loved animals, the outdoors, basketball, the color purple, and her brothers. The girl with the bright smile and the seashells in her locks. It goes without saying, but I can't end this series without stating the obvious. At just eight years old, Dee took a monster off the streets and was the key to solving the senseless murder of his sister. I have to believe that Briasia is smiling down on her baby brother, her heart full of pride of the hero that he became. And Jared Brink, there's another one, the epitome of if you know something, say something. That man didn't have to come forward, but he did. He had absolutely nothing to gain, but the moment he realized that he may have held a crucial puzzle piece, without hesitation, he told everything he knew. I'm sure it wasn't easy. No one wants to insert themselves into a murder investigation. He could have remained silent. He could have decided that it just wasn't his business and went on about his life. But he did the right thing. 
Jared Brink passed away unexpectedly on June 16, 2023, after suffering a severe heart attack at the age of just 48. Jared was a married father of two. According to his obituary, he was a heavy-duty diesel mechanic and shop superintendent at Linwood Mining. But that wasn't all. He was also a skilled electrician, plumber, framer, roofer, millwright, welder, and a jack-of-all-trades, who built two houses and a barn for his small farm, dug out a pond on his property where his kids could fish and enjoy the water. He raised his own livestock and gardened with his wife. But most importantly, Jared Brink was a loving, patient father and a hero. For more information on this case, head over to my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. You can finally get all your episodes ad free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Go on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, for the love of God, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.